Blog Talk Radio. I still can. I'll try to help my loved ones understand how memories can fly like grains of sand, and that I'll remember them while I still can. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. It is raining to beat the band here in Minnesota, and so I'm hoping my connection doesn't get crashed by lightning here. Um, But I've got a backup phone just in case. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, founder of Alzheimer's Speaks Resource website and blog and the Shifting Your Dementia Care Culture webinar series. Here at the radio show and on the Alzheimer's Speaks platform, we believe in giving voice to those afflicted with memory loss, along with their care partners, empowering them to live purpose-filled lives. Our goal is to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real, everyday life stories of living with dementia. And our hope is to teach people how to live with the disease, not as the disease. Our channel expert, Rick Phelps, who has early onset, and was diagnosed in June of 2010, may pop into this show. I never quite know if Rick's going to be able to make our show or not with his busy schedule. But Rick is the founder of Memory People, which is a closed group on Facebook, and it's a wonderful support group for those who have early memory loss, um, as well as their care partners and business professionals and advocates. So if you haven't checked it out, I would just put um, in the search bar on Facebook, Memory People, and ask to join the group and check it out. We here at Alzheimer's Speaks are all about collaboration and trying to shift caregiving from crisis to comfort by sharing our knowledge, our insights, our passions, and encourage all of you to join our mission by liking us or tweeting about us and and sharing that we're here. All of our episodes are archived, so you can always go back and check them out, or you can email them as well. If you're listening live today, we would love you to join the conversation, and you can do that by utilizing your chat box if you signed in with Facebook, or you can call um, into the studio, and that number is 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. And then you just have to push one to go ahead to get into my little waiting room. And when there's a break in the program, we will um, pull you into the conversation. Today I am very excited about this show because I really think it's going to be a show that's going to be life-changing for many of you listening today, no matter what your role is with dementia. If, if you are a person living with the disease and have been diagnosed, if you are living with the disease because you are a care partner or a business professional or just an advocate or an interested party wanting to learn more, the people we have with us today are powerful and dynamic women. We have first, on our first half of the show is Lisa Snyder, and then Carol Larkin and Pat Sneller will be joining us. And they all are extremely passionate about making positive improvements and helping people live a great purpose-filled life with dementia. 
So I'm going to go ahead and introduce Lisa first. And Lisa Snyder is a clinical social worker, and she's the director of the quality of life programs for the um, Shirley um, Macros Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at the University of California, um, where she has worked with people with Alzheimer's and their families since 1987. In the early 90s, when caregiver needs were um, receiving the most public and professional attention, she was a pioneer in developing support groups for persons diagnosed with early stage dementia. And since that, she has really continued to facilitate these groups and really has just done so much. I'm not going to read her whole bio because it's, it's, it's very extensive. You'd be super impressed. I'll have all the information on the blog. Um, but I would rather just dive into our conversation. She has authored um, two books that are exceptional, and we will be talking about them today. One is called Speaking Our Minds, and the other is Living Your Best with Early Stage Alzheimer's. And Lisa, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Lori. Very nice to talk with you. Well, I'm thrilled to have you on the show with us today. And I wanted to start out by just asking you, what got you interested in Alzheimer's and dementia? Were you touched by it personally with a family or a friend member, or was it just job-related and pursued from there? It was a little bit of both. Um, I was touched by it personally. I lived with my grandmother when I was in my early 20s, and she had all of the symptoms of Alzheimer's, but we didn't know that that's what it was at that time. I just thought, this is my grandmother, and she repeats herself every 10 minutes, and she sees people in the house, and she walks downtown in her nightgown. But I was, you know, 20. I didn't make much of it in terms of a medical diagnosis, but we had a, a very close, very dear relationship. I did not intend probably six or seven years later, to go into the field of Alzheimer's. But I was in graduate school in social work and did a rotation in my internship through the Alzheimer's Research Center, and I just immediately felt at home. I felt a a love and a kinship with the patients and the families, and I haven't left since. (laughs) So um, it just was the right match for me, and I think that the foundation that my own grandmother set for me uh, and having had a, a sweet, challenging sometimes, but positive experience, um, you know, certainly helped me find my niche professionally. Cool. We have since had my mother-in-law with uh, dementia and also a dear cousin of mine uh, with dementia. So it it touches home. Okay. Okay. Well, that's always nice background for us to know um, as listeners. I wanted to... Um, talk to you about your books and why you decided to write each of them and because they're they're both very powerful and very well done. Um, so why don't we start talking with about speaking our minds first. What drew you to um, to develop this book and format it the way that you did? Yeah, I didn't start out thinking I was going to write a book. I started out really in the early 1990s interviewing people with Alzheimer's because we had heard so much from the caregivers, rightly so, uh, very important messages from them, but we had really next to nothing um, on the voice and the experience of, of living with Alzheimer's. And I was very interested in that so that I could be of better help 
to these individuals. So I began doing a series of interviews, going to people's homes, um, tape recording them with permission, obviously. And I interviewed about 20 people uh, with Alzheimer's at that time. I began to write an international newsletter that is still in circulation, uh, Perspectives, and that is a newsletter that gives voice to people with Alzheimer's. Um, I began to write that newsletter, and then as I began to collect these testimonies, I thought, you know, these are so compelling. Again, these are silent voices, really, to the public. And so I thought, I think this might make a helpful book. So I selected seven individuals that I had interviewed and went back and, and did subsequent interviews with them. And in some cases, you know, three or four years had passed since the first one and began to really flush out those narratives and uh, then began to create this book, not really knowing, you know, where it was going to go or what was going to happen with it. And um, a publisher did get interested in it, and so there, you know, it became a book. But again, it wasn't to set out to write it. It was to set out to explore the subjective experience of the disease, and it and it became a book that that the participants were so proud of. You know, oh, so. it's very well done and so so informative. Is there a, a favorite um, chapter that you have or story that you would like to share with us regarding mm-hmm. speaking our minds? That's an interesting question, you know, and I really can't say that there's a favorite. What I can say is that each person um, who is profiled really uh, called upon me to think about Alzheimer's in a different way to explore different kinds of symptoms and experiences with it. I found I identified in some way with each person, um, whether it was because of their sense of humor or their sense of of questioning or inquiry about what was happening to them or their feistiness or their introspection. Each person in the book is, is so unique, and I think each experience of having the privilege of going to the home and exploring and learning about their lives just um, helped me grow. And that that's a really compelling message to me about that book and one that I try to share with people is we are really much more like the person with Alzheimer's than we are different. And as a disease advances, we start feeling so separated and, and like we're on parallel paths or different universes sometimes. But we are really a lot more like them in ways that we feel, in ways that we experience the world, in ways that we what we want and hope for. So I think that's what the book taught me, and that was really one of my favorite take-home messages for myself from that whole experience. Well, thank you for saying how like we are, because I, I think that that is one of the biggest myths out there, and the commonalities are just unbelievable. Um, but they're on a different level, like you said. They're they're how we feel. That the the emotional connection um, is absolutely amazing. I would like you to um, tell us kind of the story of a garden gift, just because it's summertime out, and I think it might help others. That's in the book. Can you speak to that with Betty? Sure. The garden's gift is really with with Betty Reichert and. We have no problem giving her last name now because they've been, you know, very public about this. And she was a, a retired social worker, 
and also a extraordinary uh, gardener and and experiencer of being in the now. And you know, when I went to her home, um, she and I had had a, a long conversation, and it was uh, a beautiful, beautiful, rich conversation that I had uh, looked forward to going home and transcribing and interviewing. And as I completed the conversation with her um, and was wrapping things up, I looked at my tape recorder and realized I had not turned it on. I had not been able to capture any of that conversation. And I, I must have looked aghast, you know, because this was a couple of hours of rich discussion. And she looked at me and she obviously identified with the experience. <laughs> and, and, you know, she said, can I get you a cup of tea? And I thought, you know, that would be really nice. And so I sat there sort of muddling over my mistake, and I thought, you know what, this is what Betty experiences day in and day out, multiple times throughout the day. She thinks she's going to accomplish something. She has it all set up. She forgets to do it, etc., she came out and she said, let's take a walk. She knew how to diffuse the problem. As a person with dementia, she knew what needed to be done. And we went out into the garden and we walked and we looked at the plants and Betty talked about them and identified them and shared a bit of history with them. And it was the most lovely experience to just be present with her, to feel how she diffused the own conflict in her life, how she shifted from a, you know, sad mistake I had made to focusing on beauty, to just unwinding, being here, being now, and it was a very, very real gift to share that with her, Um, to look at a huge tree that was in her yard, and and she was so proud of that tree, and and, uh, it was an inspiration for her how sturdy it was, and uh, yeah, it was an extraordinary experience. So you know, instead of going home and transcribing, I I wrote about that experience, which was probably even more meaningful. Oh, that's just a beautiful story. That's just so beautiful. And I think, you know, part of it is, you know, what I noticed anyways with my own mom was the ego with this disease kind of falls by the wayside. And so things that once were important and once it would be judged, no longer are. And they're just accepted, and you just move on from there. Mm-hmm. And what a nice way to live your life, you know? Yeah, I think it's. <clears throat> I think it can be a very nice way to live one's life. I think it can be very frustrating, too. I think it can be um, challenging to not feel the links between the past and the present and the future that all of us really rely on and count on day to day. And yet... Um, it is a gift when we can step in and release things quickly and move on. And that's that's a very challenging thing to do. And yet that's what Alzheimer's asks us to do because it's a in the moment type of experience oftentimes. Definitely and, and you know, for me I I've learned to kind of let go. Um and I wish I would have learned that way early on, <laughs> you know, as a child growing up, um, even or a teenager. Probably when I was younger, I probably let go easier. Um, but that's just been a gift to me to kind of live in the moment and not worry about what's happened or what I can no longer con- control. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that was displayed really nicely in that story that 
don't waste a moment going down that path because we still have time to enjoy together. Right. And, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful way to sum that up. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I love, too, with this book um, that you have discussion questions at the end. And can you tell us kind of why you decided to put those in, or was that always a thought from the get-go when you wrote it? It wasn't a thought. It was a, <clears throat> something that I did in the revised issue. The the revised updated issue uh, came out more recently. And I put in those discussion questions because I think sometimes we sort of plow through material. You know, fortunately, we have a lot of material on Alzheimer's available to us now. We kind of plow through it, we read it, we look for information, but we don't pause to really think and reflect about what we can take with us, how we can translate this into our own lives and our own experiences. And so I put in those discussion questions as a way to really do that, to try to um, have have readers sit back a little bit more and pause and reflect on what these messages are really trying to talk about. So that was that was an afterthought really for the revised edition. Okay. Well, I think it's wonderful, and I think both of your books would be great um, book club books um, to be able to get the discussion going. In fact, I would love to see somebody start a book club for dementia. Um, it's a great idea. Raise the awareness. And mm-hmm. um, I know I'm just not the person to man that, but if any of our listeners are interested in doing something like that, I can definitely help you promote it and get the word out um, if you want to go ahead and coordinate it. <laughs> so um, that would be really a, a very interesting thing to do. Let's get into your other book, Living Your Best Life with Early Stage Alzheimer's Disease. Again, another fabulous, fabulous book. And one of the things that I loved um, was probably one of my favorite quotes in the book was from a counselor that said, this is a bend in the road, not the end of the road. And I thought, what a nice way to state the diagnosis. You know, this isn't the end. It's just a shift. You know, mm-hmm. courses have just changed. And mm-hmm. I think that that's just such a beautiful way to be able to embrace it and and keep perspective that there is life to be lived with this disease if you are the person who has it or if you're the person um, caring for someone or a friend with it. Don't let that relationship end because someone has a diagnosis. Most of us have some type of diagnosis. Mm-hmm. and And we know all of us aren't perfect. So, um, you know, just kind of stop judging and move aside and and let things go. Um, Originally, I was going to ask you for your favorite chapters in this book and to kind of highlight them for us, but I was so impressed with this book, Lisa, that I'm going to be totally selfish and pick my favorites and ask Uh you to share a bit about those, if that's okay. Sure. Because... um, but before we get started with, with my favorites, can you tell us um, kind of how describe how the book is laid out and why you broke it up the way you did? This book, is a, uh, Living Your Best, is a very different kind of book from Speaking Our Minds. And Living Your Best is, is much more of a, of a practical guide so that the person with dementia does not feel alone. And it's really based on... Um, inspiration from writing my newsletter. It's the quarterly newsletter perspectives that I've written for, I guess it's now 17 years. And that newsletter, I've always written so much practical advice and essays from people with dementia in it that I began to get a sense of the themes that are really common 
for people with Alzheimer's or a related disorder. And I also learned that a great deal from doing weekly support groups for people with Alzheimer's. So the book is laid out in 30 concise chapters based on very specific types of issues. So it's meant to be read as needed, whether you're trying to deal with you know, taking care of your family relationships or managing memory loss or what if you live alone or finding meaningful activities, dealing with hope and humor, um, different kinds of subject matters so that it's it's shorter nuggets that are much more manageable for a person with memory loss. And it's infused with a lot of practical information and a lot of quotes from people with memory loss who are dealing with the topic at hand. And then discussion questions at the end of each of the 30 chapters so that family members can use those questions to open up dialogue with their loved one. So the book is also meant to be a manual for families to use, for professionals to use with persons with Alzheimer's or related dementia to really start dialogue and open up discussion. And I I, I totally agree in, ter- in terms of the use. I want to just clarify, sometimes when I hear the word manual, I think really technical, boring, <laughs> uh-huh. and this book is not. It's a very easy read. It's very concise. It will touch your heart, and it will help you immensely. And so... Um, it is it is a manual it's a bible it's you know it's kind of your life protector um and i love the way you chunked it down so people can refer to sections um to really get to the meat of whatever it is that they're needing at the time and i think that that was a very smart way to do that um i want to first have you talk about taking care of family relations Relationships, And there's a, a quote here that opens this chapter up that says, At first I wanted to protect my family, but I decided that it was more important to be honest with the family right from the beginning. And and I just I think that that's such an important statement, um, to stop trying to hide and protect and just be honest so that you can all move together through this. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about this chapter and maybe some insights that that would help our listeners? Sure. I think that the the family relationships are complex. And this was an individual who, just as the quote conveys, uh, wanted to protect the family, wanted to to hide this, to disclose this because of a fear of, of being a burden. Or also what is a common fear is a fear that if I disclose to people the trouble that I'm having, then they're going to swoop in and take charge and I'm not going to have any control of my life anymore. So so people with Alzheimer's frequently talk about disclosing their diagnosis very gradually, picking and choosing who they might want to tell it to. Some people try to hide it until the point when it just isn't hideable any longer or they think they've been hiding it, but other people have clearly noticed things. It's a very, very delicate stage. Some people um, will recognize their own symptoms before any family member does, and it's the family that's in a bit of denial. But that getting everybody on the same page um, is a real challenge in the early stages of, of Alzheimer's. And I think that that quote speaks to that, that it's ideally it's important to be honest right from the beginning. Not everybody can do that, but we want to work towards that. 
So I think that it's again it's a, a delicate area, and I I tried in that chapter to talk about um, some of the barriers that get in the way of families getting on the same page, and barriers as described by people with Alzheimer's. Well, and I think you know it's nice the way you have described this because there is no right or wrong way to deal with this disease, and mm-hmm. and our family dynamics and our personalities are all different. Um, but I think those who have experienced this and lived through it say once it's out in the open, it's such a relief for them. I mean, even just to get the diagnosis, to know there's an, be able to put a name to it, because then you can start to plan and move forward. I think that's true. I I think for many people it is a relief. And what people will also talk about, too, is it can be a relief, but there can still be stigma. Stigma Mm -hmm. is a very real topic of discussion among people with with Alzheimer's, about they want to be forthright, they want to be open with it, Um, they don't feel like they've done anything wrong, as if it's something to be ashamed of, and yet there still is this stigma that they're not mentally stable or they're no longer intelligent or if you have Alzheimer's, now people aren't going to talk to me or they're going to talk to me like I'm a four-year-old. So there still is a feeling of being labeled that is difficult for some people and and we want to be um, cognizant of that also and help people move through that. The other thing that's very fragile in in those uh, family relationships is the whole process of of decision-making and partnering with the person with Alzheimer's so that they don't feel like things are being done to them, but things are happening with them. There's another um, quote from Ruth in that chapter, and she says, I'm not a loaf of bread that you can pick up and put there or pick up and put there. I will talk about it. I will listen, but you must talk with me about it so I can make an informed decision. It's my decision. So that's a tricky stage um, in the early stages with families. We want to encourage partnership when possible so that the person still feels informed and involved in decisions affecting their lives. The other thing that I liked, you know, is you've got in questions for discussions and then on this chapter, for example, you've got questions for strengthening those family relationships. And it's Mm -hmm. like what a nice way to to end the chapter because it's it's on an upswing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's really an attempt in this book too is to at the end of each chapter provide real practical suggestions. And and this isn't, you know, based on a world where everything goes well. I mean, having had three loved ones with dementia and you know, worked in the field now for 25 years, I know that that things are not always rosy and things aren't on a happy note but i do believe that there are ways to work things through in an encouraging manner where everybody can can grow and come through this in um, more meaningful ways so at the end of each chapter there are uh, practical suggestions along with uh, questions for discussion great chapter seven is i think a really important one and it actually will tie into our show's second half, which is going to be on memory cafes. And it's uh, the ch- chapter seven is maintaining friendships and creating new ones. And the opening quote here is, meeting new friends can be unexpected um, and a positive outcome 
of having Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And do you want to share with us a little bit about insights on this chapter at all? Yeah, I think um, this chapter is, is a really important one in, in the sense that we have an idea, of, uh, you know, based on, on many people's experiences, but based also on what the media has done with Alzheimer's, that it is the long goodbye. And I had a, a person with Alzheimer's in a support group say to me, you know, one week during a discussion of this concept of the long goodbye, she said, hey, she said, I want people to know that there are some hellos along the way. And I thought, wow, that is a very powerful message that, you know, yes, we're saying goodbye with a lot of losses and a lot of challenges in this process. There's no doubt about that. But if we open up, if our communities are receptive enough, if we have access to engaging with other people, then there are a lot of hellos along the way in this journey. And people with dementia will talk about them, and certainly their family members, care partners, friends will talk about them. We've had you know, couples who have met early on in this process whose loved ones are now rooming in long-term care together. We've had couples travel together. We've had you know, people with dementia in support groups who visit one another when somebody has to move to long-term care and is advanced more quickly. These are going through the ups and downs of life together in rich relationships that mean that their communities have opened despite a very difficult disease. Yeah, I think it makes, anyways, for me, it's it's made me appreciate my relationships at a much deeper level than I even thought was imaginable. <laughs> and so when you get together with a group, um, like this, that that it still wants to live life and still wants to prosper and wants to belong. It's amazing the energy um, that you feel and the connection um, with that group. Uh, we just had a, a memory cafe meeting, for example, yesterday. We had a brand new couple join us, and they just melted right into our group um, because it was just a safe, inviting. Um, fun place to be, and and that's basically what we all want in our friendships. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to feel comfortable, and we want to feel like we belong, and have a place to laugh, and and be able to cry, and mm-hmm. you know, or whatever it is we need to do. But just know we're accepted for who we are and what we're going through. And I, I think there's so many gifts and lessons that can be found, but you have to also be willing to look for them. Mm-hmm. And you you used two really beautiful words there of, of acceptance and belonging, and those are two um, you know very very powerful experiences for for a person with Alzheimer's or a family member because it can be quite isolating. You know, feeling am I the only one experiencing this? And um, really, the world begins to close in. So, I I really agree with you that that many times families will come to gatherings or groups and just immediately feel like, oh, I can I can be me here. This is a safe place to be. So memory cafes, I'm, I'm excited that you're going to have that topic on your show because that's a, a really innovative wave of the future and we need more of them. I think so too. Um, now in Chapter 8, you've got strategies for effective communication for family and friends. And I think that that's really a very, very um, important chapter because 
so many times people, you know, they they get worried, they get embarrassed, and so a lot of times people will just shut down because they don't want to make a mistake. Um, and they don't want to embarrass themselves or they don't want to embarrass their friends or family. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this chapter? Mm-hmm. You know, all these chapters are just based on the wisdom that I have gleaned from people with Alzheimer's over the years. And, and it's really just as you said that many of them will talk about shutting down more, becoming more isolated, just getting quiet because they're afraid they're going to repeat themselves, afraid they're going to make a faux pas and, and stumble of some sort, or the pace of conversation is just running so rapidly and so quickly that they can't process it anymore. And then you end up with the consequence of the family members thinking, well, she's just not there anymore. You know, she's really faded away. She just doesn't talk anymore. We can't, you know, get her engaged it's oftentimes the environment and the context that just isn't working. And if we change the environment and the context and our approach to communication, we find that many people with even advanced dementia have quite a bit to communicate. So this chapter is really about um, finding ways to set a better a context, set a better stage for communication to happen, and also dealing with practical issues like aphasia, when people can't find a word, how do you deal with that? Um, you know, some people with Alzheimer's talk about liking to have their words filled in, somebody coming to the rescue. Other people are frustrated by that. So how do you find out what your particular loved one needs from you in order to better enhance communication? So this chapter is about, um, you know, practical issues like that and then also about our our approach and creating a, a safe environment to communicate. Well, and I love that you pointed out that one person might like this and the next person might not because so many times I think people want this magic bullet pill to fix everything. Mm-hmm. And everybody's an individual. All the dynamics are different. And so... Sorry, you got to use your investigative hat. You've got to be communicative, and you've got to figure out what's going to work in the instance you're in. And that's right. So that's and and when possible, to ask your loved one. I'm okay. always I'm always surprised. You know that we'll I'll be having a conversation with a, a dear care partner, somebody who is working so hard, wanting to to get it right, wanting to do the best that they can. And this is a fine example of that when their loved one, you know, can't remember a word, and they come to me, well, what should I do, What, what, you know? And I said, well, have you asked your husband what's helpful to him? Well, no. Do you think I should ask him? Yes. (laughs) Ask him. And he might very well tell you what's helpful. So I think that, that family members forget to include the person with Alzheimer's in the strategizing. And in fairness... Not every person with Alzheimer's is capable of doing that. Some do not have a great deal of insight into what is going on with them, and that's a particular neurological symptom of the disease is limited insight. But we cannot assume that everybody has limited insight. Most people have some insight, if not a great deal. So engaging your loved one and asking them to be part of the solution uh, can be very illuminating and can also be very affirming for the person with dementia. Oh, definitely, definitely. And, and you know, err on the side of asking. 
Yes, <laughs> yes, know. absolutely. Um, Mary had written in here that uh, in the chat box we need to be upfront with our diagnosis and educate everyone if we're going to stop this stigma. And she says that she has a website where she basically writes um, her journal to keep her family and friends up to date on how she's doing. So good for you, Mary. I think that that's fantastic that you're you're open and um, sharing that information with others. That's absolutely fantastic. A nice, nice way to do it. That is fantastic. And, and Mary, I would um, encourage you also, if you're interested in writing and getting your message out to other people, um, I always review essays for Perspectives Newsletter, and it is a free online newsletter. It goes out around the world, and every issue has essays written by people. And by essays, I mean, you know, thoughts, reflections, poetry, uh, written by people. Uh, with some form of dementia, so um, I welcome your your comments and and if I can give my email, Lori. Oh sure. Uh, to l s n y d e r at u c s d dot e d u, and I think that's on the um, blog website also. Yep. But that is a, a way to, uh, you know, get your message out, and that's I think it's such an important thing. When when a person with a diagnosis has the courage to do that, then they're very very powerful voices for making a change in in our world. Yeah, and Mary says that she actually gets about four to five thousand hits a week um, on her website, so that's that's pretty cool. And that she does get your perspective. On oh, good. So good. Great. Great. And, Mary, if you want to go ahead and type in in the chat box your website, feel free to do that so that others know and can can take part in that as well because um, we're all about sharing resources here. And let's see. Then I wanted to talk about, um, in Chapter 13, you talk about what if you live alone. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that do live alone. Yep. And that's a, a very... Uh, kind of hidden population that we're only beginning, I think, to to understand. And I I really felt that that was an important chapter because people who live alone are even that much more isolated and oftentimes um, even that much more clinging on to their sense of autonomy because the choices for people who are living alone, um, uh, you know, are, are sometimes challenging. Uh, do I move in with a family member? Does somebody move in with me? Am I going to be put into long-term care? Do I want that? How can I live alone and have some sense of autonomy but also be safe, be responsible to myself and my community and my family? How can I access resources? So that chapter is really um, taking a hard look at that issue and and how to... Um, Look at this along the continuum. At what point may I no longer be able to live alone? And and the chapter really talks about that also. To to buff up supports as much as one can to maintain as much autonomy and decision making. But at what point is this perhaps not a safe thing to do or a healthy thing to do? Um, people who live alone may have rich social networks. Many of them don't. And there's a risk of isolation. Limited social stimulation is not good for the brain. We really want to keep the brain 
engaged, involved in social interaction, using communication, using the thought processes involved in social interaction, activity. So living alone poses some unique challenges, and I felt it was important to address that. Oh, definitely, because I I think a lot of times we forget about that person who Mm -hmm. is living alone and, uh, you know, what they're going through. Um, So I think that that's very important. You also have a chapter, Chapter 24, about finding and using available community resources. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a little bit to that chapter? Because I think that that is, of course, another critical, critical spot. And I think that's, you know, unique to each community. So what I wanted to do in that chapter was um, to not say here's what's in your community because I don't necessarily know um, what your community has to offer, but it's a chapter to um, help the person and families explore what kinds of things to look for and what kinds of things could be useful um, in your own community and to really um, pace yourself with finding those resources you know, some individuals or families plunge right in and they want to know everything that's available right now. Um, some people want to pace themselves and bit by bit engage in some of the help or assistance that may be available to them. So it was basically um, a chapter to look at the types of resources, whether they be education-based, support-based, uh, assistance in the home, transportation, legal, financial, um, and where to find these kinds of services, uh, some very uh, general nationwide uh, organizations provided in that chapter, um, like the Alzheimer's Association or the Alzheimer's Foundation of America, Elder Care Locator, um, Alzheimer's Disease Education and Referral, some some general websites that will allow you to explore what is available in your own community. And then also um, discussion about people who live in rural areas, and that's a, um, a largely underserved population. We need more innovative ways to engage people in rural populations, and um, I think social networking is going to be the wave of the future for that. And, and perhaps Alzheimer's cafes or other uh, community-based places where uh, rural families can, can congregate and come together for support. Great. Well, it looks like we've got a caller on the line, so I'm going to go ahead and pull them in. And just a second here. Hi, we've got somebody from a 336 number, and welcome to the show. Did you have a question or a comment? Hello? Oh, maybe not. Okay, we'll just continue our conversation here, so not a problem. Um, I wanted to also go over um, Chapter 20, which is the benefits of mental stimulation. And I think that that's a really important factor that so many times is overlooked. Um, Can you talk to this chapter a little? Yeah, there really is a whole lot more research going on now um, in the benefits of, of mental stimulation or cognitive stimulation, as it's oftentimes called, and the thought that we really need to continue to exercise and use our brains. Now, there are many people who have exercised and used their brains extensively throughout life and still get Alzheimer's. You know, we can't prevent it um, by staying 
mentally active. But once one has Alzheimer's or a related dementia, it's really important not to give up, that that there's ways to adapt and keep the mind engaged even though a person is experiencing a lot of challenge. So with mental stimulation, there's different kinds of things that are going to be unique to each person um, depending on what their interests are. Some people enjoy doing uh, these computer cognitive fitness games or crossword puzzles or jumbles or sudokus. Um, Other people find those to be terribly frustrating. Um, Some people enjoy music and going out and um, engaging in in activities that they still enjoyed. Other people are backing away because they can't do it in the same way they used to. We have to, with each person, find out what kinds of things are of interest to them and open up some opportunities to do that because it's it's uh you know a risk that people retreat and not use their remaining abilities the key with mental stimulation cognitive stimulation is that it can be a little bit challenging but if it gets too challenging and a person is just experiencing continued frustration in the activity that is not productive for the brain. So it needs to be something that is engaging enough to be a little challenging to keep the attention peaked. And if the attention is peaked, then the brain is engaged and stimulated and being exercised. So it's it's a matter of really finding out the right recipe for each person and having um, some opportunities to, to think about what might be your recipe. So this chapter is really about that and helping people think about different kinds of activity that might be more meaningful to them. Okay, great. And Mary was just saying she uses the Nintendo Brain Age games as well as other games on the computer for her. And uh-huh. um, and I think that was a really important um, fact that, you know, they're not so different than us. If it's frustrating, it's not fun. <laughs> and you're right. not going to want to do it. So right. keep, keep that in mind, you know. Um, this, yeah. this doesn't have to be rocket scientists. It just, you know, we just need to really pay attention mm-hmm. to what it is that we're doing and and how we're doing it, and watch the signs. Um, mm-hmm. Now, the the last chapter that I want to cover is, um, and I think it'll just be a really nice segue into getting into the memory cafes, is speaking your mind through advocacy, mm-hmm. and because I, I just think this is a huge, huge. Um, topic of empowerment um, that is so um, underutilized and untapped for all of us, people with dementia and the rest of the population. Um, I think advocacy is just a huge, huge factor that can give us purpose and meaning and help so many. So if you can go ahead and, and speak to this chapter, that would be wonderful. Yeah, um, I I agree wholeheartedly with what you just said. Advocacy is very, very powerful. And I think it's important to realize that many of us may think of advocacy as, you know, marching to Capitol Hill or getting in front of Congress or writing a letter to the president or marching in a march. That's a powerful form of advocacy, but advocacy is also in your day-to-day life. Advocacy is you know, a web page. Advocacy Mm -hmm. is talking to your neighbor and saying, you know, I I do have Alzheimer's and I just want you to know because maybe you know somebody who has it too and I could be of help. Or advocacy is 
is just putting it out there and helping to create a climate where Alzheimer's is folded into all of our day-to-day lives. And that's that's really sort of the spirit of, of advocacy. And I think people are a little thrown by the word sometimes or think, oh, I can't be an advocate or I, you know, I'm kind of a shy person. Um, that's a job, we, yeah. <laughs> right. And I think we can all, you know, make a difference again uh, in our in our just day-to-day interactions and engagement with people. That said, it's it's very inspiring to see an international movement where many more people with Alzheimer's or related dementia are coming forth and saying, hey, I'm the one who has the disease. You need to hear my voice. You need to understand it from my perspective, and you need to do something about this. So what more powerful voice um, to hear? And, you know, having been in this field professionally now for 25, 26 years, when I first started out, there was nobody with dementia speaking out about this. It was a kind of a foreign concept that the person with Alzheimer's could speak their mind. And over time, this is the progress that we have seen. We get discouraged about not having treatment or cure, but we have made tremendous progress in hearing the voice of the person with dementia. We need to do much more in that. But they are our greatest educators. And so oh, we need as many opportunities as possible to to facilitate and inspire their voices being heard. Yeah, and Alzheimer's Disease International is an organization a lot of people do, don't even know exists. Mm-hmm. And so I really encourage you to, to check them out too because they list all Alzheimer's associations throughout the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're making great progress. Um, a, a prime advocate would be even Rick Phelps um, with Facebook, who you know, was diagnosed in 2010 um, Norms McNamara over in the UK, who's working on dementia-friendly cities and businesses. I mean, mm-hmm. the voice is so strong, and you know, you don't have to do these big, elaborate things. It's just even if you share it with a friend or a neighbor. Absolutely. You know, um, if you if you can start sharing, you're going to feel empowered. Mm-hmm. And you, I hear that over and over, and I'm sure you do as well. Um, then there's a reason for this disease. There's a purpose, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's giving people purpose to educate. And we are finally, like you said, turning the corner where we're we're saying, you know what, we can't guess on what it's like anymore. We need to talk to those who know. And, um, you know, in training one time I had somebody say, well, but that's what it's like now. That's not what it's going to be like later. Well, it's a lot closer <laughs> than where we were before because That's we don't right. really we don't really know. So let's grab as much information from those who truly know what mm-hmm. it's like and try to develop right. strategies and resources and collaborations to to make life better for all of us. That's right. And you know, I think that when when we're talking about hearing the voice of people with a dementia, oftentimes the verbal voice is in the earlier stages of the disease. They're able to articulate, tell us what they need, what their experience is, what their concerns are. But I will say that I think if we hear those themes and those messages in the early stages of the disease, 
They are exactly the same themes as exist in the late stages of the disease. The person may not be able to verbally articulate them any longer, but they express them behaviorally, they express them emotionally, they still have the same needs as they did in the earlier stages, they just can't tell you them as well. Mm -hmm. So if we understand those themes earlier on from the voices of people who can share them with us, we will become much more sensitive to our loved ones in the later stages of their disease because we will have a sense of, of empathy for what they might be experiencing. And the world becomes more confusing for the person with dementia and for us to detect what is happening. But again, I think the same themes exist. The want for communication, the want for respect and some sense of purpose and autonomy and dignity, the need for community, the need for hope and connection, meaningful engagement, the fear of people taking over too quickly. These are all things that we see in late-stage people as well. So I I think that um, these voices are extremely important for us to understand, and they'll guide us along the whole continuum. Yeah, and when we listen to them in their early stages, they really help train us on what to look for in terms of those emotions and those behaviors and those things we may have overlooked. Um, Mm -hmm. And and it becomes so natural that it really becomes so much easier to give care because you've developed that relationship, that connection over time. And it really, it's it's not as much work um, because it's just a natural thing. It's just something you do at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that can really bring a lot of calm to the relationship um, and to, you know, whatever it is you're doing, and just this peacefulness of knowing that you know one of one another and that you're going to protect and care for one another mm-hmm. and love each other. Mm-hmm. So, Lisa, I'm going to see if, this, if we can get this caller on again. So let me see. Again, I'm going to pull in the caller from the 336 number. Did you have a question or comment? Yes, How I do. You? Can you hear me? Um, yes, yes, I sure can. And what is your name? My name is Karen Bain. Hi, Karen. And what Hi. is your question um, or comment? Okay, um, I wanted to go back to the the mental stimulation and activities. Um, I have been trying. My mother has vascular dementia, and I'm, I'm trying to get her to do activities. Um, if it's nothing other than maybe folding clothes or a seek a find or going to the the local adult enrichment where they play bingo and have lunch and or going to our uh church for worship services and Sunday school that she used to be so involved in. Um my my problem is she will talk about all day long that she's gonna go but then when it's time to leave, I mean, she'll go as far as getting ready and, you know, we'll get her hair fixed and everything. But then when it's time to go, she refuses to leave the house and will not go anywhere. And on the occasion that I can actually get her out of the house, um, she is extremely scared. And I understand that because she told me when we were at church she felt like she was in a room full of strangers. And at one time, all of these people she knew, and they were all her friends, 
how do I help to get her or to help her feel? I mean, I, I stayed with her, and, you know, I was holding her hand, and I was introducing her to people. What can I, as a caregiver, do to help her to get out of her bedroom and watching television mm-hmm. and do things that will stimulate her mind? Mm-hmm. Well, she won't be scared. First off, she is so lucky to have you. She really is. I mean, I can hear the concern and the conviction in your voice. You just really want to do what's right for your mom. So she is so fortunate to have you in her life. One of the things I'm I'm hearing is that she may get um, overstimulated and overwhelmed pretty easily. And it may be that you have to try this in very small little bites for her. Like you might have one of the women from the church uh, come over and just one-on-one visit with her. First have a little cup of coffee or tea in the house and then just say, you know, I really want to take a walk. Would you mind taking a little walk with me around the block? Maybe the three of you go out, take a walk around the block. Then maybe the next time your mom goes out alone with the woman, gradual bits that gradually desensitize her to this fear and anxiety she has about the foreignness of the world around her. She might do better with more one-on-one. So if you have another family member or somebody who could come in and play bingo with her or do another game with her, um, that can be just as meaningful and important as going out and being in a group. Uh, You need the respite. You need some time out. But she may do a little bit better with one-on-one or maybe just two other people to interact with. And then, again, gradually with that other person going out, maybe having a lunch or or doing something together. I, I, I'm sensing that it's a lot of these activities are, are group things, and she's just a little uh, frightened and overwhelmed by groups. Does, does that make sense, or, or does she get resistant to one-on-one, too? That makes sense. And there are ladies from her Sunday school class that do come, and our deacon comes, um, they do come once a month to ladies from the church, and they come and visit with her. And her deacon um, comes and visits with her. Um, and she always asks me to come in there. I try to give them privacy. Um, and I will come in there and sit with her when she asks me to. Um, and so that's mine. I, I take it that's mine stimulating us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think... You know, bit by bit, to try to see if if she can tolerate a little bit more time each time with people who come to visit her. If they only come once a month, that's not enough to sustain familiarity. Each time it's like a brand-new experience to her. If she can have, um, on a more routine basis, and sometimes families have to hire somebody to be a companion, but if you can patched together or if you have the means to hire someone, if it can be done on a more routine basis so that she gradually gets accustomed to some time away from you. Because my concern is that this pattern can build in over time where she will just not let you out of her sight. And that can be extreme. Pardon me? I said no, she doesn't. I'm her only caregiver. 
I have a sister um, who has nothing to do with her, unfortunately, and um, my doctor tells me all the time that I have to get away from her, but I can't. I don't have anyone to help me, and I'm financially we are not able to get anyone to help, and um, it's taken a toll on my health, and um, but I wouldn't have it any other way. She's my mother. Well, that's again why she's incredibly lucky to have you. But we we don't want your health to become too compromised by this disease, and your mom would not want that either. So. You know, the other thing that sometimes people need, and I'm not a big proponent of medication, but sometimes an anxious person uh, can benefit from a little antidepressant because sometimes, and, and people with Alzheimer's will routinely tell me this too, that the antidepressant that they're on or occasionally some of them take a little anti-anxiety medication, that it has just really helped them not get so stressed out about things. And sometimes if a pattern is really stuck in and kind of stubborn and and your mom is anxious, you know, she's she's suffering from that, and it's a medical condition. If we can't environmentally work with that or or don't have the team that can kind of come in and assist with that, we can give a very little bit of medication to try to take some of that anxiety away so that she can participate more comfortably in activity. And so it's something to talk with your doctor about, but, and we're always very cautious. We don't want to administer medication at every you know, drop of the hat or, or give anybody too much, but sometimes it just takes the edge off. And, and it's humane for her. It's helpful for her because she's struggling. You know, she's frightened. She's overstimulated. She doesn't feel confident. She's, you know, um, and so I think... Talk to the doctor about that. Um, when she goes to the senior center, is she? It sounds like she just won't go out the door now any longer to get there. Right, she won't. Okay. Will she go out the door to go anywhere with you? The grocery store. Grocery store. So you know, one thought too is to to go out the door, go to the grocery store, and then. Just don't buy any frozen foods, but on your way home, stop off at the senior center together and just do it kind of en route on the way home and hang out at the senior center together there for, you know, half hour, an hour. You know, play bingo with her. Do something with her there. Again, kind of a gradual desensitization and then go home. She's If you're telling her, Mom, we're going to go to the senior center now, it just gets all of her anticipation all, all anxious and concerned and she just walks at the front door. So you might just go out to some place that's more enjoyable, and then on the way home, just casually go by the senior center together because you want to play bingo and play bingo together. And, you know, yeah, and, and then, you know, it's not complete respite for you, but you're getting out of the house, and maybe, you know, she gets engaged in the bingo, and you just get to go in the other room for half hour and do something else and then maybe if you do this on a routine basis in another week maybe she tolerates going alone it's the repetition enough to build familiarity that's important what um do you have any ideas of things that 
we could do at home or that she could do. I mean, just, I mean, I would be happy to play card games with her. I know that she doesn't uh, remember how to play, but um, would I be able to teach her? I mean, I know with a short-term memory that she's not going to remember, of course, but is there something that we could do at that house that get her out from in front of the television? Yeah, I mean, sure. She, she won't might, even... You know, it depends on her level of ability, and you just have to gauge that. She may not be able to play complex card games, but you might make someone's, something up, like getting out a deck of cards and that the game be um, matching all the hearts, matching all the spades, matching all the clubs, you know, matching all the diamonds, so that so that it's just gets down to a basic kind of a matching game of some sort. So you have to tease out what her level of ability is. Um, it may not be the sophisticated strategy of, you know, solitaire or or rummy or something, but it may be that you can develop some kind of a of a little matching game where she can sort the cards into into the suits, and that's a very stimulating activity. Um, some people enjoy puzzles, you know, putting larger puzzle pieces together, sitting down together, doing um, the the larger uh, uh, puzzles with the bigger pieces. Uh, that might be a nice uh, interaction. I tried that. Game. And oh, how did she respond to that? She told me not to treat her like a baby. <laughs> <laughs> were they baby-looking puzzles or were they adult puzzles? They were adult puzzles. They were just... Uh, bigger pieces. She always liked the, um, you know, the 500 piece puzzles and the thousand piece puzzles that you spread across the big dining room table. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that was just way too much for her. And so after that, I went and got one of those puzzles, and she said she couldn't do that. So it was like I couldn't win for anything. You know, the smaller puzzles. Thought I was treating her like the babe, a baby, and then the bigger puzzle. She said, "There's no way I can do that." So, okay. I'm going to yeah. wrap up this conversation just because I want to roll into our memory cafes. But I thank you for calling, Karen, and I think our our next two guests may have some answers and some ideas for you as well. The other thing I wanted to mention was, depending on um, your relationship with your mom, sometimes things don't change. So if she's always been stubborn, sometimes that can continue to be. Other times there can be great personality changes um, with it. Or are there certain tasks maybe she's done around the house that she could continue to help with, even if it's sorting laundry um, to go into the washer or folding clothes or doing dishes, um, but things that were maybe a more normal routine for her too, um, those things can be stimulating to them as well. And um, so that's just some some food for thought. But I thank you so much for calling. But I want to um, kind of wrap up this portion of our our show with Lisa, and I want to make sure that everybody gets Lisa's contact information. And so, um, Lisa, can you tell us how people can get a hold of you and what would be the best best method? Really the best method is, is by email. And uh, that email address, again, is L-S-N-Y-D-E-R, L-Snyder, at U-C, 
csd.edu. And that's um, really the most consistent way to get a hold of me is, is by email. Okay, wonderful. And I've got the links for her books. Um, I'll, I will have those posted on the on the blog as well as her email address. And again, the Perspectives newsletter is just such a wonderful treat, I think, for people to um, be able to subscribe to and for many of you maybe participate in. And so I would really encourage you to do so. I, I thank you so much for your time today, and you're more than welcome to, to stay on the show and join the conversation here um, for this second half, or if you have to go, that's that's fine too. I know time is time is critical there. Thank you. I will definitely tune into your show, though. I, I'm very interested in the memory cafes. Okay. Well, great. You have a wonderful day, then. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you so much. We're going to go ahead, and I want to introduce our next two guests, and that is um, Carol Larkin, and Carol has. So many um, certificates that she has done in degrees after her name. I actually had to call and ask for all the the terminology behind them, and I'm not going to get into all of that, but she is just such an absolute joy and such a powerhouse in the world of dementia. Carol is a geriatric manager who specializes in helping family members with Alzheimer's and related dementia issues. She teaches them about the disease and helps them find out um, options to deal with problems arising from dementia. She's also a certified facilitator and trainer for the Virtual Dementia Tour, which is absolutely incredible. If you have not um, partaked in that, please, please, um, if it comes to your community or if you're looking for something to do, look up the um, Virtual Dementia Tours because they are going to change how you think about dementia and how you go ahead and um, react to it. And so um, she's just, a, like I said, a powerhouse. She writes lots of articles for many, many different um, newsletters and blogs and is just a wealth of information. Her company is called Third Age Services, and she serves the Dallas-Fort Worth um, area. So welcome, Carol. How are you doing today? Um, hi, Lori. Thanks. You are just way too generous. Oh, no, you are. You are just, uh, you're a force to be reckoned with, and that's what I loved about this show. I think all of the women on the show today um, just are such a great positive force with wonderful insights, and I'm I'm so happy to have everybody here with us. Now, Pat Sneller is also going to join us, and she is a care partner for her husband, Lee, who was diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment in 2005 and Alzheimer's disease in February of 2009. And she lives in Texas um, to be close to her family. And um, they just, uh, between the two of these gals, they have now opened up another memory cafe. Um, And so I'm so excited about this because we just brought the memory cafe concept to the U.S. It's something that was over in the U.K. um, this last summer, and they're starting to go like popcorn right now. So how are you doing today, Pat? I'm doing great. Thank you so much, Lori. I appreciate being on the show. Well, good. I'm going to kind of ping-pong the questions between the two of you, 
And I want you, um, Carol, if you can tell us about your neighborhood memory cafe and how did it come about and why did you feel it was important? Sure, I'll be happy to. Um, the neighborhood memory cafe actually started in uh, Pat's brain. She, um, <laughs> she, it's true. It's really true. She was um, um, working with the Alzheimer's Association of Dallas. Uh, she's done a lot of work with them, and she was very interested in uh, getting something for her husband Lee, who was beginning to. Um, oh, shall I say, progress in his disease past uh, the point where he was in a Alzheimer's Association program. She was looking to do a memory cafe, and she approached them uh, at the Alzheimer's Association, and um, after about a year of them saying, yeah, okay, okay, and not doing nothing, she and I were talking um, just just sitting in her living room talking, and she said to, to me, well, you know, I really would like to do this. And I said to her, Pat, let's just call up some of our buddies. And that's essentially what it was. We called up some of our buddies, got together, and and essentially made plans. I know it, it sounds too easy, but it kind of was. Pat, would you like to add any comments to that? Well, Carol's described it pretty accurately um, because this has been a vision of mine for over a year, and I wanted social opportunities for my husband. Um, he's always been a more social person than I have been, and I could see that it was getting more difficult for him to interact in social situations because as Lisa Snyder talked about, I was listening to her part of the show, you know, they, he was afraid to say something wrong or not know the word and feel embarrassed. And and um, we had experienced some quarterly social events that were being hosted sort of by the, the art chapter of the, of the Alzheimer's Association. That was something that I, I suggested to them, and, and the quarterly events did happen, and we loved them. But I thought quarterly wasn't often enough. And I'd started, I'd already started reading about the memory cafes and other places, and I said, I want one here. And so, as Carol said, we we pulled together this wonderful, passionate, skilled, knowledgeable team of women in this area, all of whom are, are Alzheimer's and dementia professionals except for me. And, uh, you know, we just jumped right in, and I think we had three meetings once a month. I think we met March April, May, and we hit the ground running June 7th and had our first event, and uh, it was really exciting. Well, I, I just think it's incredible. That's pretty much, you know, what I did here in Minnesota, too, was I got the concept. I said, you know what, I think these, these people would be interested in this, and we just threw the hat into the ring. There's no money. Everyone's kind of volunteering their time, and it has been so beneficial. I mean, people just love the gatherings because it is a safe place to belong and and partake in. Yeah, there's no mm-hmm. explanation needed, there's no judgment and it's just a just a very very um neat thing. Now, I know you guys have you had your first meeting now? Yes, uh, uh, sure. Okay. Yes. And what kind of response did you get? Because I know for us it took a little time to build up. We had one or two parties, and, you know, I thought, oh, my gosh, is this thing ever going to grow? Um, and it definitely it definitely has, but I've also found that 
anyways, for our group, um, and I should tell people, uh, I'll tell people what our group is here in Minnesota. It's for people with early memory loss and their care partners, and we spend two hours together just socializing. We don't separate at all. We're, we're a full group the whole time, and we meet twice a month. And um, and it's just it's really very informal, very fun. Um, and then Pat, can you tell us when your group meets and who who are you trying to draw in? Because maybe it's different than our memory cafe here. Sure, Lori. Actually, ours is the same in that we also include the care partners. It was it was our, my intent all along for the care partners to be part of this. Um, we, this first one is meeting in a local senior center. They've been very uh, welcoming and supportive of what we're trying to do and provided us the room. Um, so we had set this initial one up to meet once a month. We just didn't know how many people would show up. We, I think Carol and I thought if we got 10 folks there, we would be just so happy. And we had 31 people show up for their first meeting. Oh, so. Exciting. We were uh, we were thrilled, and we just hope that it will be you know continue to sustain itself because it is um, informal. Uh, we will we've provided some ga- uh, some games and some puzzles and some things. Nobody did that the first time, but maybe they will. But it's going to be user driven. Uh, so if that particular group of folks wants to just sit and chat. Yeah, that's fine. If they want, some of them want to play the games, and some of them want to chat. That's okay too. Um, so we don't. We're still we're still the newbies, and we don't know exactly how it's going to play out. But my vision is to replicate this model once we we get um, at this first location, so that different neighborhoods in the Dallas area will be able to start their own with a little. And Carol can tell you about, she used the term "go by," and I never heard that term till she used it. So maybe Carol, you can tell tell them about what your intent is about that. Sure. Um, and you know what? Go by is uh, an engineering term, so talk to Lee about that, okay? Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, what what our intent is is essentially to be of the people, by the people, for the people, and, and of course, free, or at least as close to free as we could possibly get. We wanted to, to make this first one you know, shine, and then let other caregivers in other parts of the city uh, give them a how-to, like a little booklet maybe even. Uh, It'll be really short because there's not that much, but how-to get one going. And so hopefully, you know, kind of like rabbits, it replicates itself, you know, just (laughs) over and over and over. That's why we call it neighborhood, hoping that each new uh, area of the city will stick their area name in front of neighborhood, because we shouldn't. It shouldn't be hard to get to. As a matter of fact, it should be in your neighborhood. So that's I like that the idea. idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, and to replicate it, and you know, if you have ten people that are meeting once a month, twice a month, whatever. Whenever they want, um, it couldn't help but be good, and and uh, people are invested in it because, in fact, it's theirs. 
you know, this is how to, but after that, you know, maybe consult or something if need be, but, you know, there just isn't anything better than when it's your own. Yeah. We started out thinking, oh, we'd do a little bit of programming and we'd have some games and we'd have a resource table and it was really quite a bit of work kind of setting everything up. And then we kind of giggled and sat back and said, nobody really wants this stuff. I mean, <laughs> they, they want to just sit and chat and socialize and feel like they belong because a lot of them have lost lost friends, you know, over time through this disease and, and interactions. And, um, you know, it's just such a sad thing. And, oh, my gosh, we are having huge hail coming down on my house oh. right now. <laughs> like, we had it, we had it here yesterday. <laughs> it's our storm coming your way, I suspect. <laughs> oh, jeez, yeah, it's, it's pretty big. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you can hear oh it, but it's God. banging up a storm. Um, yeah. But what we, what we did, too, was kind of that, you know, by the people, for the people, listen to them, what is it that they want, and, you know, keeping it simple was just so okay. important. Right. And, um, right. and so much more comfortable. We have the resources available if somebody needs them, and we all kind of chip in as a team you know, watching, you know, how things are going and and who needs what. And it's it's just a group effort of support. And as a facilitator, um, it is so much fun because half the time we just sit around and laugh. And we get to really know people on an intimate level um, and of what's, what's working, what's not working, um, what did they do. Um, we don't focus always on the disease. And um, they just are so thankful for these groups. So I, I thank you guys for taking the initiative to starting one and then to have the vision to, you know, expand them like rabbits, as you said. <laughs> I, think <that's, laughs> I, I think that's great. What kind of feedback did you get from the participants this first time? Uh, well, I don't, Carol, you, I, you, I, I think... We felt a lot of energy in the room. We haven't gotten any formal feedback. At least I haven't. Have you, Carol? Well, you know, except on the way out, everybody goes, God, wait, when can we do this again? You know, when is the mm-hmm. next one? When is the next one? Yeah. So that's, I consider that feedback and good feedback. Oh, that's Absolutely. wonderful. That's wonderful. It's, um, you know, our group has also evolved into being very, I think, powerful advocates. Um, they are talking about wanting to do some interviews with the press. Um, I know they've helped me with some of just my um, initiatives that I'm doing in my business in terms of participating in, in um, design and layout and ideas. And, you know, they really want to share and figure out how how do we make things better for people? You know, how do we give voice to this disease? And, um you know, come together as a community and remove the stigma. And I, and I find that being um, so exciting, too, when they when they want to reach out and they want to feel empowered um, to not only just help within the group and feel that support, but starting to reach out more into the community as well. Mm-hmm. Um, now, have you found good support through, well, maybe I should ask you this, who did you partner with? Why don't you go ahead and tell us who your partners are? Um, to kick this off, you're talking about the other members of the team that that yeah, developed your, your, this. Yeah, your other founding members, and Pat, if you want to go ahead and take that. 
Sure. Um, well, after Carol and I talked, and we, we know a lot of the same people, and I said, well, here's four other people besides you who I've talked to over the past year who have expressed an interest in having a memory cafe here in the Dallas area, but who are all professionals, like Carol, busy, couldn't do it on their own. And I said, okay. You know, I I can be the the gopher. I can I can pull them together if they're willing, and we can I can schedule the meetings, and I can write the kind of summaries of our meetings. Where are we now? Where, what more do we have to do? I'll do that part if you guys who have the knowledge that I don't will um, will be part of the team. And so we called um, Carol. Is it okay? I mentioned their names on air. I suppose it is, right? Yeah. 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 So Sydney Ferrier is a social worker, has been an administrator of a memory care facility in the Dallas area, has been on the staff of the Greater Dallas Chapter, and now has her own business with a couple of partners helping train uh, other uh, Alzheimer's and dementia professionals. Um, and she was one, in fact, who started the Trailblazers program in, in Dallas, which is a support group for early people with an early-stage diagnosis and their care partners, so the focus is on the person with the diagnosis. We also have Audette Rackley, who is uh, head of special events and programs at the University of Texas um, Dallas uh, Center for Brain Health. She is, I teach, she teaches, she writes books, she's very knowledgeable, and they used to have a what they called Brain Cafe at the Center for Brain Health. Um, there is Jane Nunnally, who is a Ph.D. nurse at Baylor University School of Nursing in Dallas, uh, and she specializes in gerontological nursing, and she teaches that to her students. And, um, and last but not least is Pam Kovacs, who is the owner-director of Friends Place, which is the premier gold standard adult day center in the Dallas area. So, and she was previously an activities director in her other life at uh, a skilled nursing facility. So these are high-powered women, and I am just honored to be part of that group. Oh, very exciting, very exciting. And did you have any resistance at all, um, or did people just kind of jump in with both feet? And, Carol, I'll let you go ahead and take that one. Oh, you know, there, uh, whatever the opposite of resistance is, that's what we had. <laughs> they, they just couldn't wait. I mean, it's, Okay, let's schedule it. Let's get our meetings. Let's go, go, go. All these people are just, you know, they're blurs. They want to move so fast on it. So, oh, yeah. Motivated people, uh huh. And um, we got cooperation wherever we wanted um, for the venue. Um, the Richardson Senior Center stepped right up. Um, they did everything they could to enable this to happen, uh, up to and including providing the coffee, which actually, strangely enough, because we had so many people, um, we had just put out like a little, uh, actually it was a, <laughs> a Kool-Aid pitcher, one of the old Kool-Aid pitchers, to uh-huh. be a collection, to be, you know, to drop money in for donations to pay for the coffee. Well, as it turned out, we made a profit. I mean, that's just crazy. But, yeah, we made a profit. That's exciting. Every memory cafe that I've heard pop up has had the exact same experience. One person has opened their mouth and others jump in and go, how can I help? 
And so I would really encourage our listeners out there, don't be shy. If you are one of those people that wants to get involved, think of who you know and approach them, and magic will happen. It's it's incredible. It is magic. Yeah. You know, to be to be part of that process is just it's it's absolutely unbelievable. And so don't deny yourself or people dealing with dementia that opportunity because it is it's pretty it's pretty cool stuff. And it's not difficult because everyone who's involved is at the core of their passion. And so it just it comes together so easily. And it's very it's very fun. Very fun. Yeah. So, and you know what, Lori? Uh-huh. We might be I mean we might be able to help um because eventually we are gonna write this go by. So it's you know, um, our intent is to make it available to anybody, not just Dallas folks, but you know, anybody. Well and definitely well, get Definitely get that to me because with the new website that I'm hoping to launch here sooner than later, that'll be an international directory, um, a resource for dementia, and memory uh-huh. cafes. It will have its own special area. So I, right. I want to start tracking where these are, um, so that mm-hmm. people know where they can go. And then again, we can have different information available within that thing in terms of you know the. Um, the information from the UK, and then if there's different designs here people want to share. I've pretty much been sending out the information that the UK shared with me and said, don't get scared. <laughs> They're government-funded. You know, <laughs> just look intent. This is what we're doing. <laughs> and it's really uh, simple and really fun. And uh, um, so it's – and there's no right or wrong way because, again, these – the whole purpose of – a memory cafe is to be for the people's needs, not what we project they need, but really facilitating mm-hmm. what they want in their mm-hmm. community. Mm-hmm. That's the and I'd like to, ju- mm-hmm. yeah, I'd like to jump in and piggyback on that because I had, while I was watching the first part of your show, I was jotting down some notes and. It, it was interesting to me as we were heading for the first meeting last week with my husband and I, and I'm driving, and, and I'm saying, now, you know, I don't want you to be out there working that room. You don't, you aren't the host. I, you're, I'm doing this for you. I want you to enjoy it. Be the, be a participant. Talk to these folks. And and I realized, and he he tried, but honestly, it's his nature and part of who he is that he wants to work through. And that he was an executive, he was an engineer, and then he was a management executive, and and that he thought that was his his role to go around and encourage people and talk to them. And so I I, I said, okay, well, this is what it's about for him. It may not be just sitting and having a chat with somebody, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I needed to, to say it's okay for me for him to do that because it wasn't exactly what I had in my mind for him, but he's getting something out of it. Great. Now, Mary just noted in the chat box here that Nova Scotia has just received the same information from the U.K. for their new memory cafes, and Ontario um, has just started up um, as well. So that's, I mean, it's it's really exciting um, how this yeah. is going. And this is all happening it has really happened to to bubble through social media and the connections that were made um, through the social media. Um, it's just making it so much easier to make the connections and share 
share the wisdom and the knowledge and the insights um, with one another. And so it's it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so now your memory um, cafe. Um, what day of the month are you are you meeting on a certain date or day or? And Carol, mm-hmm. I'll throw that to you. Yeah, um, it's the first Thursday of the month, uh, every month, and uh, we're holding it from 10 a.m. until 11.30. Uh, And we had uh, talked with a number of other people who um, have have run uh, and are running memory cafes. Um, Some of them are afternoon. Um, maybe even summer after uh, supper, I'm not sure, but um, we decided to give it a shot in the morning, figuring um, 10 o'clock is enough for everybody to be uh, late enough for everybody to be up and dressed and, you know, ready to go do an activity for that day. And then 11.30 is um, just before lunch, and if people really need great friendships, well, what the heck, maybe they just go around the corner and get a hamburger together. Yeah, we meet one to three. Now, initially we had met, um, because we, we, we had no idea who was going to come or what time frame was going to work. So initially we did the first Wednesday of the month from one to three, and then the second from six to 7.30. And what we found was here in Minnesota, people didn't want to come out in the winter in the dark. Sure. <laughs> so, and so the group said, "Can we just do it during the day?" Um, and so now we now we do both of ours one to three, and we have found that it works well because people have had lunch, or they mm-hmm. come. And some of them will because we meet in the coffee shop. Some will go buy lunch there and bring it in because we always have mm-hmm. treats anyways, and people are munching. Um, so mm-hmm. some do that, and then um, and then they have time to go home um, before supper, um, or they can go out afterwards, like you said. So. Again, there is no right or wrong, and I I think the thing with with these cafes is to be flexible. You know, nothing is engraved in stone, and you're putting it out there. It's not necessarily going to be perfect the first time, and it may never be perfect. But, you know, to me, that's not the goal because everything's always changing, and so Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's just available, and it's a resource, and it's good, and I think... You know, I think you can even improve on perfect. So I don't. My goal is never perfect because I, I don't. I don't think I'll ever achieve it because I always think it can be better, even if I thought it was darn good. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. With that, you know what I think is uh, really amazing is that. Uh, for, forgive me. I'm going to leave you out of this one little tiny section because I'm going to talk about the professionals. You know, professionals sure. have a tendency to think, you know, it needs to be structured and patterned and, you know, I know all this. And for the first time that I've seen in the local area, us professionals, we professionals, uh, you know, got out from under our own feet. It, that that was cool, just saying we're backing off, you know, um, we don't have to tell you what to do because you can do it yourself. Yep. And that's a concept. Yep. Very good. Yep. Mary had just made a, a note here that their brains work or her brain works better in the morning. She and then she kind of <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I, 
I never know when my brain's going to work the best. I, I never know on that for, from day to day. But um, yeah, I think I think professionals and organizations um, have really gotten in the way um, in, in a lot of aspects in terms of we're so used to control, and it has to meet standards, and it has to be measurable, and it has to. And, and it's like, well, do we need someone to sit and count? You know, count how many times somebody smiles and laughs. Is that really what we have to do to prove? that this works, or do we not spend our money in that fashion and just say, damn it, we're going to do it. Okay, I I love that. I love hearing you say that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and and I think it's important, you know, the proof is in the pudding, but there becomes a point of practicality, and we are in very tough economical times, and we have Mm -hmm. to be smart on how we are utilizing our resources and we have to be very wise in terms of getting these services to the people that need them today. They cannot wait 20 years for us to figure this out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. And I know, Pat, you have some definite feelings about, um, you know, just you know how we how we deal as a community, and um, and even the press. So I kind of want to get into talking about. Um, you know, how much press have you guys gotten or have you really pushed this out on your own? But have you really gotten any media? Yes, we have. Um, I think I, um, well, I'd like to share that one of the the coolest experiences of our whole life was on January 1st, 2011, we rode on the Alzheimer's Association Pfizer-sponsored float in the Pasadena Rose Parade. Uh, My husband, Lee, was on the National Alzheimer's Association Early Stage Advisory Group at that time, and we were invited to be one of the float riders. And so we were interviewed by the L.A. Fox News affiliate for that, and Harry Johns joined us for that um, interview, and that was very exciting. Um, we have done, you know, a couple of other, several other things. While he was on that national group, we spoke at the Alzheimer's Association Leadership Conference in Atlanta. Uh, I don't know that the media, I mean, the media covered it. We weren't personally covered, I don't think. Um, we've had some local coverage uh, in the Dallas Morning News a couple of different times. We've done some videos for the, the local chapter of uh, the Greater Dallas chapter. Um, and I have pushed out for this cat memory, neighborhood memory cafe to the editor of the local section. Dallas Morning News has a bunch of local sections, and I contacted the editor that one that covers the Richardson area where our first uh, meeting is, has occurred and will continue to occur. It uh, turns out that the current editor is going out, I think, this week to have a baby, and she has, there's somebody new. So I'm going to get in touch with that person next week and say, I'd like you to comment. I'd like you to see what we're doing. And um, and so, yes, I am pursuing that, but we have been pursued as well. So we've kind of been Wonderful. on both sides of it. What, what can families and nonprofits do um, in terms of convincing the media to do more coverage on these events? Do you have some ideas about that, Pat? The only idea I have is just to persevere because there is the stigma that we've referred to. Um, If they haven't had personal experience, they don't really know much about it, and they're kind of afraid of it, and they don't want to talk about it. Um, So, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. I really don't. I wish I did because our publicity for this first 
Memory Cafe was really enhanced by the the city of Richardson, which, you know, the senior center is part of that, and they do have um, electronic e-newsletters that go out to their residents, and they posted an article in those newsletters both in May and June, just prior to our first meeting. I think that helped a lot. And then all the rest of us on the team as well as the local Alzheimer's Association chapter sent out, you know, email blasts to everybody we knew who might possibly benefit from from it. And um, so, but other than that, I don't know the answer. It's hard to get space in these newspapers because they are affected by the economic times and people not reading newspapers. So I don't know. Carol, do you have any ideas on that? I I think it's more about uh, the continuing stigma of of the Alzheimer's and related dementias. It, it, for the press, I have a feeling that you know they don't want to have a story that's a negative story, even though this is a positive spin on a negative story, if you will. Yeah, um, right. I think it's just uh, it's still the elephant in the room. It just is, yep. and um, we just got it. I don't. I don't know what else to do. With, uh, but there's got to be something. Just yeah. haven't mm-hmm. thought of it yet. But there's got to be something. Well, I'm gonna. I'm gonna pose a question to Lisa because she's still on the phone listening to us. And Lisa, do you have any ideas in terms of how to shift our media um, to give us more coverage in terms of dementia and Alzheimer's disease, and in total, what maybe family and friends and professionals all can do? You know, it is hard because I think in, traditionally the media has been more drawn to the tragic devastation of the disease. You know, that's really what has been kind of the top stories, which is is important, but it's also helped to contribute to, to some of the stigma and fear uh, surrounding Alzheimer's. Um, I think that the media tends to be uh, more drawn if you can have a, um, you know, unfortunately, if you can find a spokesperson in your community who is a of a, you know, celebrity status or uh, renowned scientist status who can kind of uh, become connected to your cause or connected to your issue. Um, Here in San Diego, you know, they always want to have findings to attach to it. So even with something like the Memory Cafe, if you can present the media with some outcome about how it's changed someone's life or or some piece of soundbite, I mean, it's, Regrettably, we have to provide these these sound bites or these nuggets for them to attach onto to create a story out of. So, you know, I'm hearing that there's a lot of narrative outcomes from these uh, memory cafes that are really important. But could those be consolidated into some message that says, you know, memory cafes help to alleviate isolation, or you know, some kind of a headline that you can present to the media, and that that engages them a little bit more. The, I, you know, our experience, frankly, is that we have to kind of feed them mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. the uh, soundbite oh, yeah. storyline. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Right. I, I, that sounds consistent. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You know, the other possibility, too, with something like Memory Cafes is if, if one of your um, – if on one of your events you would – Invite a speaker, like you invite a local researcher or scientist or somebody to come, even just to give like a 20-minute update at the Memory Cafe. 
that will pull media in and then it's in the context of this cafe and that draws attention to that cafe mm-hmm. even if that isn't the sole purpose obviously of the cafe mm-hmm. it's a way to to uh get the media maybe a little bit more engaged and involved mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's yeah. a, that's a good idea pat i think that's a great idea because i know that one of the neurologists on staff at UT Southwestern Medical Center, they, she is the education chair of the of the Alzheimer's Disease Clinic there, or Alzheimer's Disease Center, excuse me, and she's also on the board of directors of the Greater Dallas Chapter. So she's up to speed on all the research, and she has the credentials, and she, ha- I, she has had some media coverage recently on the local TV channel. So... Maybe she would, and I think these folks would be interested in hearing that, although we are, you know, advertising it as casual and strictly social and not educational per se. So I don't know. Carol, what do you think? Um, I think that we might make a uh, a special event of the, you know, the speaker because it's, it's true we were uh, – intending to do whatever they wanted to. Um, we have lots of support groups and we have lots of speakers and all that stuff. That exists a bunch around here. And so our original intent was just keep it simple. But, you know, I think there is a place for uh, a special event, you know, to have a speaker come in and do that. I, You know, I think we can. Yeah, we yeah because we don't want to... You don't want to dilute the specialness of the cafes that, that sometimes it's people's escape from thinking about um, all yes. time too, just to go and, and socialize and um, to exactly. feel connected in that way. The other place where we've advertised um, some of our, our programs is, I don't know if in your community you have like an elder care guide or a senior resource guide of some sort. In San Diego they put one out annually and all of the senior services are published in this guide, um, available free of charge. Uh, I think it's done through our local newspaper. But that's a you know good place to start getting the word out too. It's just in in uh, general uh, senior kinds of guides or news gazettes or community advertising papers. Yeah, a lot of yeah. Um, we'll have to make people. a lot more in our our coffee money profits. But I mean, it's eventually doable. <laughs> Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. a lot of the newspapers have a, a free event calendar that you can just do right. online um, to be right. able to get out. Or I know I when I go to um, professional networking things, a lot of times I just bring flyers and handouts. You know, we have, like, resource tables and stuff, and so I kind of promote yeah. that way. And, um, you know, it's just about keeping it top of mind. And I like the idea with the events. When we first started, we, we actually had... A, um, I think two two or three events that were just to get people in to find the location and to tell them what we were about. And so those drew mostly professionals, and it was nice because some great connections were made and some referral sources um, mm-hmm. were made there. You know, mm-hmm. we were we were hoping that our Alzheimer's Association here was going to um, help us um, spread the word of it, but that that has not happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because yeah. their own, own groups, um, which is too bad. But you know, that's just yeah. and that might I just will, be our own location here. 
Well, I, I don't think it is. I think that's something that's an issue across the country, and, and I understand it to some degree, and we mentioned earlier about the, the realities of any professional organization like the Alzheimer's Association where they have they have certain directives that they have to follow and they have to do certain things. But I will say that they they ended up partnering with us for a four-month period because it just worked out that the timing was such that they applied for a grant and, and got the grant from the National Association to start a social engagement program. It's a four-month program. They approached us because they knew we were doing what we were doing and um, said, could we be part of this for this four-month period? And we we had made it very clear that we wanted it to be a grassroots effort because we didn't want to have those restrictions of having to have questionnaires and, and you know, all the stuff that goes along with being part of an Alzheimer's Association activity. They're, they require it, but we didn't want to require that of our people. And uh, so it's worked out, and they have, in fact, put, um, put our flyer for the Memory Cafe on their website. Um, and so we're hoping that somehow this partnership, when their grant period ends at the end of September, that we may be able to put together something that is mutually beneficial but still is our vision of what we want this to be in the future. Yeah. Well, and maybe, and I don't know if they would allow this, but even if members could chat about it in their chat rooms, you know, to be able to talk about this is just another resource because I know a lot of times those are shared and if they would allow that to be one of those coming from a person with the disease, again, not not staged but just really sincere, you know, they try to help one another with support and stuff, that might be a, a real natural way um, to, to mm-hmm. allow that to, to happen and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, we all, I think, have to work together in terms of getting the word out and um, not be afraid of another one popping up down the street because the needs are different. And the groups groups will be different. I mean, you know, look at how many sports teams we have. Look at how many different churches we have. You know, this is just just another um, support and social engagement um, avenue for people. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. none of us own any of it. And I think the second that we think we do, that's a huge mistake. Um, because this really is about the people and for the people. And if we keep our minds and our hearts aligned with that, um, I think they'll continue to grow, and I think the response um, will be really embraced by the communities, you know, that that receive these. Because they, I mean, the members, our members, they, every single time we meet, they tell me what a gift this is to them and how much they look forward to coming and seeing their friends. And if someone's not there, there's true concern, you know, is mm-hmm. something wrong or what's going on. So we'll make a call and just let them know that they've been missed, and we're hoping that everything is okay. But we, we also tell them that we don't want them to m- have this group feel like it's another thing that they have to track and be responsible for so we don't ask for RSVPs because we just don't want to put that burden on them we want them to know they will. They are always welcome, and we are not tracking, um, you know, right. so many times, and you can't come anymore. I mean, we're not like that. It's it's you are always welcome. If it fits into your schedule, we'd love to have you. And, you know, if you're having difficulty, we'll still support you by the phone. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's other ways um, to be able to do this. We've talked about even Skyping with some people who are on vacation and um, different things. Hmm. So it's there's... 
there's lots of different variables, and um, again, just not getting locked in a box. I think, yeah. you know, knowing that we each have the key to to make this thing powerful. We also, when you were talking about the events, um, talked with our group about, you know, because they had some questions that would probably be better off um, spoken to by a by a neurologist or a, uh, you know, a psychologist and stuff, and so. I said, well, we can get a speaker in, and they were very adamant they could not have the floor more than 20 minutes. <laughs> they were not willing to give up any more time of their two hours than 20 minutes. And I thought that was really cute. So one of the things that we are working on doing, and it has not come to fruition yet, but we, um, in, because the doctor's time is very tight and, and um, you know, uh, difficult to get to, we're gonna we're gonna do it via Skype um, uh-huh. or or through my webinar platform and have uh, and go that route. And again, you may or may not have those capabilities, but again, it's about thinking out of the box to make it work, make it economical, and still get people what they need. And we're talking about feeding them. Here's our questions on this topic. They can go ahead and address those questions, and then we'll still have time for a few more. For interaction, That's great. And when it's over, it's over. You mm-hmm. know, then we get back to just chatting, <laughs> you know, or playing the mm-hmm. game, or, or whatever it is that we do. So, Lori, mm-hmm. Lori, I got a question for you. Sure. Because you've been you've been at this memory cafe thing way longer than us. Have you had an occasion where um, a person with uh, dementia? began acting inappropriately or, you know, maybe got loud or something like that. And if you did, uh, what occurred and and how was it taken care of? We have not had that as a problem. What, we, what we've had as, and I, and I hate to even say it as a problem, we had, we had uh, a, a couple of communities, one, and one actually came and joined us, and it was their staff with all their residents. And we, we let them come, and we, we didn't kick them out, but we said, this isn't what this is about. You have, you know, you have services, and this is for people in the community that don't have services. And mm-hmm. if, uh, if one of your residents wants to come with a family member, and now it's, it's part of, you know, the community, um, then they're welcome to come. But this isn't for, for uh, activities to keep busy, you know. <laughs> That's not the intent. Um, to help with that. And then we've had some um, questions um, as far as who can participate. For example, mm-hmm. it's designed for the person with early memory loss and their care partner. But we do have um, a couple of people that come by themselves without their care partners. And as long as they are able to participate and they are able to be um, safe, you know, to our knowledge, getting there and back, they're more than welcome to come because a lot of these people are still driving and still maneuvering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we want to be conscious of that. We also um, have some people who participate in our group whose person has progressed, and they are just a wealth of information, and our group loves them, and they don't want to lose the, that friendship. And so, they come even though their person is no longer able to come. And, you know, I've been warned about the, you know, it could turn into a grieving thing and it could turn into this Mm -hmm. and it could turn into that. And my attitude and the other founding members is we're not going down the rabbit hole. 
Um, we are going to go in with this with a positive light, and as issues arrive, um, you know, at our doorstep, hopefully we'll, we'll have foresight to cut them off before it becomes a big problem, and um, we'll, we'll just deal with it, you know, but we're not going to develop a policy of what might occur. Right. Can I ask a question on that same topic? Because the way, the way we have, have structured this first um, uh, neighborhood memory cafe in Richardson is to, uh, Carol very generously uh, offered the services of some of her geriatric care manager colleagues to act as, for lack of a better word, we're calling them a hostess at this point, mm-hmm. uh, to volunteer, to come and kind of just be there, oversee the the the, the, the process that day. And um, we actually had two of them last time. And they helped with the sign-in. And our intent was if somebody does have an issue or problem, because it's so new for us, we wouldn't. We didn't want our team to have to deal with it initially because we were observing the process to see what was working, what wasn't, so that we could tweak it as necessary. But the other issue in my mind is that we wanted to work ourselves out of a job as this advisory board that, yes, we would be available by phone or email or whatever to help new groups get started, but it is certainly not my intent to int- to attend every single Richardson neighborhood memory cafe because I don't live in that community. My jo- I'm going to be starting one in our community as soon as I can. And mm-hmm. so it sounds like your board actually does attend or someone does every time. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I don't know the question I'm asking exactly except how do, how do we do that. I mean, I'm thinking I will ask for my neighborhood cafe when I'm trying to get it going to ask activities directors from local long-term care facilities to come in and volunteer to act in that hostess role for us so that I don't have to do it. Um, yeah. But I don't I have, know. I don't have any other ideas beyond that. <laughs> yeah, I have found, you know, I've been at, I think, every meeting, maybe I've missed one, um, but I found it, it good for, for a consistency standpoint and to really be able to see how we need to develop. Um, and then I have um, other, like, co-facilitators, and I'm getting to the point now where I'll probably be edging out of this to be able to mm-hmm. do other things, um, but we've kind of had this training and this introduction so that everybody's comfortable with it. And, and um, you know, again, everybody has to do what works for them within the constraints that they're working within. And I, I hate to say this, but we only have two minutes left. This has just been <clears throat> a wonderful conversation today um, with Lisa and Carol and Pat. And I, I could talk to you women all day long, I tell you. It's just so, so inspiring. So, um, Carol, can you tell us how people can get a hold of you if they're interested in maybe talking about doing a memory cafe um, or if they're in the Dallas area? Um, what what uh, phone number and how would you like them to reach you? Um, well, here I'll just give you my phone number and um, my email, and we'll take it from there. Okay. Um, my phone number is area code two one four six four nine one three nine two and. My email is actually the name of my business, and that's Third Age Services, and spell out the word third, um, at gmail.com. Wonderful. Third Age Services. Okay. And 
Um, Lisa's information, again, I will be posting all this information on the blog, <clears throat> which will give you the link back to the archive. So I would really encourage everybody, if you've enjoyed this show, to please like us on Facebook, tweet about us. Um, you can email this episode to friends and colleagues. Um, again, we're, we're all in this together. Um, but I personally have, th- I have thought this has been just a, a fascinating conversation with some wonderful ideas and resources. So the Neighborhood uh, Memory Cafe in Texas with Carol and Pat, um, Lisa Snyder with her two great books, Living Your Best with Early Stage Alzheimer's and Speaking Our Minds. And again, I'm Lori LeBay, your host with the Alzheimer Speaks radio show. On the 22nd, I will be having uh, Erica Hornthal on, and she's going to talk about dance therapy and dementia. And so I look forward for you to all join us soon. Have a great weekend. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Way Showers who will help your journey a lot easier.